Matthew chapter 11, and I've just been praying about what to teach on, and I just want to, if it's okay with you, share out of my own life. This is the number one thing that I am learning in the last year or two in my apprenticeship to Jesus. So I want to take that and share it with you. Father, we ask for your presence. Thank you. Amen. Matthew chapter 11, take a look at verse 28. This is Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me reread this text over you from the message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible by the writer Eugene Peterson. Next slide. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is an invitation to all the tired and the burned out and the over busy and those of you on stress medication and all of you behind on your to-do list. Is there anybody like that in the room? Okay, this is San Francisco. Let me rephrase the question. Is there anybody not like that in the room? To all of you living in a city like San Francisco with an iPhone and Wi-Fi access 24-7 and a morning commute and traffic in a secular, post-Christian, progressive moment where low-grade fatigue and non-stop anxiety are the new normal. It's what we've evolved to. In the middle of social Darwinism and dog-eat-dog -dog and survival of the fittest, one cubicle or startup at a time. To all of you living in that cultural milieu, it's an invitation to a whole other way to be human. And it sounds great, but let's call out the elephant in the room. How many of you read that invitation and think to yourself, honestly, I can't relate? Anybody? Is this a safe church? Can you put your hand up here or not? <laughs> if you feel that way, you're not alone. There are people all to your right and to your left who feel exactly the same. I did for years. For years, um, I read this text, and I would think to myself, Am I missing something? I mean, I think that I follow Jesus. That's what this is about, apprenticeship. To, I think I follow Jesus, but I am tired. I am worn out. To be honest, I am burned out on religion. It happens when you're a pastor. It's like an occupational hazard. <laughs> what, what, am I missing something? And then a quiet voice in the back of my mind that Western secular voice of the cynic that is with us 24-7 would whisper in my ear, you know, it's a sales pitch. It's a pipe dream. It's rubbish propaganda. It's not even true. Or it is, but not for you. And not living in a city. And not with three little children. And that was before Wi-Fi access. And <laughs> for a lot of us, there is a disconnect between the offer of Jesus to a whole other way to be human where you have rest at a soul level, more than eight hours of sleep a night, at a soul level, where you live freely and lightly. For a lot of us in the room, there is a disconnect between that offer and our felt experience of apprenticeship to Jesus. And this morning, I just want to chat to you about how to close that 
gap. Now, if you have been around the church for any length of time, or if you grew up in the church, you know this text is a classic, am I right? So I had a Christian grandma who was into cross-stitch, and she had like this in her, like the cross-stitch of this in the bathroom. Anybody else with that? <laughs> this is like at the top candidate for the cross-stitch in the bathroom. Some of you are a little younger than me, and like you think of the 80s, it's like those of us that actually were in the 80s, it's not as cool as you remember, all right? <laughs> Stranger Things is halfway there, but there's a, it doesn't have cross-stitch in it, you know? And, and the danger is that you think you know what Jesus is talking about. What, what if you don't actually know what Jesus is talking about? The danger is that you sentimentalize and sanitize what Jesus' offer actually is. Hidden in plain sight, right in front of you on the page in this text, is what the philosopher Dallas Willard called the secret of the easy yoke. And I love that line. In his book, um, The Spirit of the Disciplines, which is one of the most important books I've ever read, he writes about how, you know, Jesus twice here has something to say about his yoke and how his yoke is easy and how odd and weird that is. And most of us, we don't actually think of Jesus' yoke as easy. So yoke, that's agrarian metaphor, but that was a first century word picture for a set of teachings. So your, if you were a rabbi, a first century Jewish rabbi, your yoke was a way of saying your set of teachings about how to be human, in Jesus' case, in the new reality of the kingdom of God. So from a literary point of view, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' yoke is chapters 5, 6, and 7, or the Sermon on the Mount, what you're about to get into. That's Jesus' yoke. Most of us read Jesus' yoke, or his set of teachings, or his whole new way to be human, and we think, man, that sounds really hard. Love your enemy. Don't worry. Where is your treasure? Like, most of us read that and think, that sounds really hard. That sounds like anything but easy. Willard writes this. In this truth about Matthew 11, right here, lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake, and pay close attention here, is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully everything you're about to study this summer, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It is a strategy bound to fail. What he's saying here is simple but profound. Here's my paraphrase. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. I repeat, if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. This is basic math. Your life is the byproduct of your lifestyle. By lifestyle, I mean how you invest all of your resources of time and money and everything else that comes with it. The rhythms and rituals and routines that make up your day, your week, your month, your year, and your life. In business parlance, your system is perfectly designed to give you the result that you are getting. So if the result is out of whack, if you're stressed out and emotionally unhealthy and you feel this disconnect between you and God and you feel this low-grade fatigue and anxiety and you're burned out on religion, then your system is perfectly designed to give you the results you are getting. The odds are that something about the system that is your morning routine, your work week, your life is off kilter and the byproduct is you do not experience the life of Jesus, what he called life and life to the full. But in order to tap into it, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. You have to adopt his set of practices, and there's a cost to that. So um, I live right on the edge of downtown Portland, but in this old neighborhood, and right across the street is this house that has about a half a dozen single people renting it right now, and they're all runners, okay? And when I say, I run three or four days a week, but I'm not a runner. You know what I mean by the difference? <laughs> they are runners. And I think they either all work for Nike or are sponsored by Nike or something. <laughs> and there's, on a regular basis, I'm sitting kind of in my little reading room early in the morning with my cup of coffee and my Bible and my blanket. It's like I'm seven again. And, <laughs> and I look out and they walk out the front door to go on an early morning run. And let me tell you, they're all wearing spandex and they look incredible, okay? <laughs> Everyone is like 2% body fat and they have all the gear. They're right out of like a runner's world, like front cover. 
and then they go off and they are down the street and they are less human being and more herd of antelope, you know, it's less, <laughs> it's less running and it's more prancing, you know. And I sit there with my coffee and I think to myself, I, I want that. I, I want to walk out the door in tights and look amazing. <laughs> that has yet to happen. But um, I want 2% body fat. I want that kind of an energy level. I want to run a six-minute mile for like an hour, two hours, three straight. I want to like, you know, let's, let's run a marathon this weekend and just go do it. <laughs> I want that. But then I think about the lifestyle behind all of that. I think I'm like with my blanket and my, you know, expensive coffee. They're out running a six-minute mile in January in this thing called that you don't have that we call winter, you know? <laughs> and I was like up late reading a novel and drinking red wine. They like had celery and water for dinner and went to bed at <laughs> 9 p.m., you know? The reality is there's a whole lifestyle behind that life. And I look at it and I think, I want that, but then I like, you know, have another glass of red wine and stay up late or whatever. And I think a lot of us feel that way about Jesus. We read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and these stories about Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm guessing that if you're here this morning, you find him really compelling or you find a girl or a guy really compelling and whatever, we don't judge your motivation, all right? But I'm guessing that you find Jesus compelling and it's easy to read story after story and think, I want that life, but then not change anything about your lifestyle. And this is where we need to get back to the idea that the way of Jesus is just that. It is a way of life. It's not just a set of ideas that you believe in your head or what we call theology. And it's not just a list of do's and don'ts or what we call ethics. It is that but it's also a lifestyle. Often in the church, and this is very much a critique of my own church, we say a lot about theology and ethics and little or nothing about lifestyle. But lifestyle is where the money is. And that's what Jesus is getting at with this really bizarre agrarian metaphor of a yoke. So think about how out of place that is. Frederick Dale Bruner, who's one of the top living scholars on the Gospel of Matthew in the world right now, he writes this about Matthew 11. A yoke is a work instrument it's an agrarian society. Think of a farmer and an oxen. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress and a vacation, not a yoke, right? They need like memory foam and kawaii, not, not a yoke. Next slide. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. We think we can, the grass is greener, and it's not. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, his yoke, will develop us in a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. There is an emotional weight to life, and there is no way around that. Move back home to Des Moines, whatever, quit your job. There's no way around it. Life is, quote, a succession of burdens. The question is, how do you carry them and carry them well? And the answer is, you take up the easy yoke of Jesus. Think about that analogy or that word picture. A yoke was used to link two oxen together in order to carry or shoulder a load that was too much for one. Jesus is saying, I'm right here Come take my yoke upon you, tuck in right next to me, match your pace of life to mine, don't surge ahead or drag behind, let me do all the heavy lifting, you just tuck in right next to me and let's carry this together and if you do that it will be easy. What right now is so hard it's next to impossible, you do this, it will be easy. Now that sounds great, but there's one problem with that. And it's a huge problem. To do this, the vast majority of you in the room, myself included, need to slow down. 
One of the first things you realize about Jesus when you read the Gospels is that he was pretty much never in a hurry. He was all over the place, sure, but you rarely read about stressed out Jesus <laughs> or like, hey, Jesus, can you pray with me really fast? Oh, I'm sorry, I got to catch a flight or you're in a convo with Jesus and he's like, yeah, and he's texting like just a second, you know, Peter here and tweet. That was a great line. The last shall be like tweet that like <laughs> you, re you don't read that. In fact, if you follow Jesus, you know, Luke writes that Jesus often withdrew into the lonely places and he prayed. You read a story where he would get up early in the morning and slip outside just to walk and enjoy the Father's company for a few hours. Sometimes he would slip away overnight for a retreat or go off into the wilderness for weeks at a time just to pray and be with the Father. Um, regularly he would sleep in. We read multiple stories where the disciples have to wake Jesus up. It's like, Jesus, it's 10 a.m., like beer mosa time. Come on. It's, um, is that just a Portland thing, the beer mosa? It's so, is that not a San Francisco thing yet? It's coming. Wait. It's wait. In Portland, we don't export a lot, but we do beer mosa really well. Um, but like, I love, I, regularly he would sleep in. He would practice Sabbath one full day every single week where Jesus would do nothing but rest or worship. He would sit around the table for hours at a time and eat and drink with his friends and his family. He would live really simply, just the clothes on his back. You never read about Jesus like in a traffic jam to get to the mall or on Amazon and stressed out. Do I buy this pair of boots or that pair of boots? Like really simple, set free from all of the discontent and all of the distraction that comes with materialism. He put on display an unhurried life. And that is what Jesus is calling you and me into. Um, John Ortberg, who I'm guessing most of you know, is a pastor just about 30 minutes south of here in Menlo Park. And he was a mentee of Dallas Willard for, I think, 20 years or something, very long time. And he tells this story about, I think it was in the late 90s, and Ortberg at the time was the teaching pastor at Willow Creek Community Church, which in the late 90s was basically the most influential church in the Western world. Ortberg was a best-selling author and kind of well-known Bible teacher. But he calls up Willard, who is down in Southern California, and he basically says, I feel like I'm missing something. Like I'm stuck in my apprenticeship to Jesus, and I'm doing well, but I'm missing something. What is it? And he says that there was this long pause on the other end of the line, because, quote, with Willard, there was almost always a long pause on the other end of the line. And then Willard said this haunting line, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Can we just pause and say, that's amazing? And then um, Ortberg says that, you know, he writes it down on his notepad. And, That's amazing, Willard. Thank you so much. Okay, and then he says, what's next? Another long pause. <laughs> and then Willard says, there is nothing else. That's so Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like, come on. <laughs> That's amazing, right? But it's a fascinating story to me. I mean, how many of you, if I were to ask you, hey, what's the greatest challenge you face in your apprenticeship to Jesus living in a city like San Francisco in a year like 2017? What's like the number one challenge that you face? I don't know what you would say. I'm guessing you would say, you know, the debate around sexuality or the political divide or socioeconomic inequality or materialism or loneliness and the ache there or porn or ISIS or violence or racism. I don't, I don't know what you would say, but I'm guessing that very few of you would answer, oh man, the greatest challenge I face is hurry. Like that's it. Just the busyness, the nonstop, the go, 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 that's at the top of my list. Keep in mind that Satan does not always show up like Will Ferrell from SNL or a demon with a pitchfork on your shoulder. What if he shows up like the dopamine rush that is addiction to your smartphone or another hour at the office on a Saturday or in commitment after commitment after commitment or in a life of speed? The famous psycholo psychologist Carl Jung, who developed the idea of introverts and extroverts, 
As most of you know, his work was used as the basis for the Myers-Briggs personality test. He had this great line, quote, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. I was talking about this with my um, therapist, who is this PhD, intellectual savant, Jesus-loving, amazing guy. And I was talking about how hard it is to lead a church past Sunday, which I love and believe in, with worship and a, a TED Talk from the Bible, all of that, um, <laughs> to lead them past that into the practices of Jesus, or what Jesus would call apprenticeship. And he said, I think three times in our conversations, he said, the number one problem that you face is time. People are just too busy to live emotionally healthy and spiritually awake and alive. The older I get, the longer I follow Jesus and pastor a church, the more I come to believe that Willard is on to something here. Michael Zigarelli from the Charleston University School of Business did a survey I thought was really interesting. 20,000 Christians in the U.S. over a few years, and he identified busyness as the number one major problem in spiritual life. Listen to his summary of his multi-year survey. Quote, it may be the case that one, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. You're quiet right now. Why is that? By the way, he writes that pastors are the worst. He rated pastors right up there with doctors and lawyers. Not me, but other pastors <laughs> really struggle with this. And keep in mind, it's not just, this is what I want you to hear, it's not just your emotional health that's at stake, as if that wasn't enough. It is your spiritual life. Ronald Rollheiser, um, Catholic writer that I love, he has this book out called Sacred Fire that's all kind of an apprenticeship in your 30s and 40s, the middle years of your life. I gave it to Dave, and I think he's read it three times last I checked. It's really good. He writes this. Next slide. Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. I love that turn of phrase, pathological busyness. What if Willard is right? What if he's onto something? And the great enemy that you and I face is hurry, that we have to overcome in order to experience the life that Jesus has on offer. The need of the hour is for a slow down spirituality. Now, we all know that the world has sped up to a frenetic pace. Let me nerd out on you for a minute or two, just a brief history lesson. So ironically, the clock was invented by monks to organize around the monastery, around fixed hour prayer. But most historians point to 1370 as kind of the turning point in human history. That's when the first public clock went up in Cologne, Germany. It marked a shift in our relationship to time. So before that, time was natural, meaning it was set by the rotation of the earth on its axis and the four seasons, or in California, the like one season. Um, days were, you know, longer in summer and shorter in winter. But the clock created artificial time, the slog of the 9 to 5, or in San Francisco, the 7 to 7, or whatever it is. And then in 1879, you have Edison and the light bulb, which cut way back on our time in sleep. So I read recently that prior to Edison and the light bulb, the average American slept 11 hours a night. Okay, now we're down to 7. Just think about, think about that. Four hours less then the, that's nothing about San Francisco. That's just like the average, the median. 
Then about a century ago, technology started to change our relationship to time again with so-called labor-saving devices. So you used to have to like, go out to the forest and cut down a tree and like, chop it up and burn it in a fire to not die in winter. Now you like, push a button on your little Nesk or like, your app on your phone that one of you invented and like, heat, <laughs> and heat just comes up out of the floor, you know? You used to have to like, walk everywhere. Now, like, you ride a bike, or you drive a car, or you Uber, or you take an airplane. You used to, like, have to write a letter by hand, and then, like, put a stamp on it, and then there was this thing called penmanship back in the 90s, and, and then walk to a post office and mail it, and then wait. Now, like, you just talk to Siri and text somebody, and the other side of the world, a second later, it's done. Yet, here's the weird thing. In spite of Siri and the dishwasher and the laundry machine and like all the microwave, all of us feel like we have less time, not more time. So in the 1960s, I kind of, I love vintage sci-fi for some reason. There were all these sci-fi writers and like high-level Harvard political theorists writing about the future and predicting that the problem, the number one problem in the future would be too much leisure and not enough work. So there's this famous Senate subcommittee in 1967, I think it was under Nixon, that said the prediction was by 1985, the average American would work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. <laughs> How's that going for you guys? <laughs> and the exact opposite happened. Actually, our leisure time is down 37% since the 70s. Over the same time period, you see the death of the Sabbath. So starting in 1969 um, with 7-Eleven, my dad actually tells stories about when he was a kid, a teenager, a high school student, um, about 7-Eleven, open for the first time. So I was born in Los Gatos, and we grew up in the San Jose area. And so he tells these stories about living in San Jose in the 50s and the 60s, where Sunday would roll around and the entire city would shut down. Nothing was open but the church. And pretty much everybody went to church. You were either like Catholic or Protestant. That was basically it. And I can't even fathom a city where nothing is open on a Sunday except the church. I, that's not even in my frame of reference. Now, of course, all of this reached a climax in 2007. Thomas Friedman, in his latest book, The Age of Acceleration, writes about how when the history books are written, historians will point to 2007 as just as key of an inflection point as 1440. 1440, of course, was the year that Gutenberg invented the printing press, which launched the Protestant Reformation. Out of that, the Enlightenment, which transformed Europe and with it the world. 2007, of course, was the year that Steve Jobs and a number of you in the room released the iPhone out into the wild. <laughs> Freeman points out that it was also the exact same year that Facebook went global, that Twitter became like not just a microblogging thing, but became global. It was the year of the App Store, the year of the cloud, the year that Intel shifted to a silicon chip, like all these technological breakthroughs. And in the last 10 years, we have literally changed what it means to be human. Now you're all an Android. We all have infinity in our back pocket. And what we've lost is all these little moments in time. Like, remember back in the 90s, that thing called boredom? You remember that? <laughs> it's like you would stand in line at a coffee shop by yourself with nothing to do. <laughs> you would not catch up on the news or tweet or check your email or look at the weather or look, you know, look on Rotten Tomatoes to see how Wonder Woman is or whatever. Like, None of that. You would just sit there bored. Or you were like on a plane and you finished your book and you were like over Minnesota with nothing to do but just stare. <laughs> now all of those little moments are gone. And remember, all of those moments were potential portals to prayer and life with the Father and coming home to yourself and the reality of God. Now all of those moments are gone. So you, and you know this, obviously. Um, you're the ones that are creating this problem around the world. But... Um, <laughs> Thank you. We export beer mosas, you export like addiction and distraction. Thank you. No, I'm sorry, I, I love you guys. As I, as I preach from my iPad right here. A recent study that I read found that the average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. They're on their phone for two and a half hours over 76 sessions. That's average across America. For young adults, it put the number at five hours a day over 85 sessions. 
And in every survey I read, most people had no idea just how much time they spent on their phone. And if you don't think you're an addict, that's fine. Just prove it, turn off your phone, and see if you're not like writhing on the floor with your teeth chattering by tomorrow morning. <laughs> now, all that to say, thank you for just my nerd out moment. All, here's, here's the point that I'm getting to. Something has changed and what it means to be human in the Western world, and something is deeply wrong right now in our society. So psychologists and mental health professionals are now starting to talk about hurry sickness, which is officially a diagnosis now. It is, quote, a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. You're like, isn't that just life? No. Psychology Today defines it as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. I read one psychologist who had three symptoms of hurry sickness. You ready for this? One, you move from one checkout line to another because it's shorter. <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> Two, when you come to a stoplight, you count the cars ahead of you and change lanes. And three, you multitask to the point that you forget one of the tasks. <laughs> Not to play armchair psychologist, but I'm pretty sure you all have hurry sickness. And we laugh, but hurry is a form of violence on the soul. Ruth Haley Barton, um, it's a great book on leadership, and she has 10 signs that you're moving too fast through life. Just let this sink in for a minute. Next slide. One is irritability, like you're just quick to snap at somebody, especially somebody close to you, a spouse or a roommate or a coworker or an employee. Two, hypersensitivity, you just get like offended really easy. Three, restlessness, like you finally actually do slow down and you can't rest, like you can't fall asleep at night or you take a day off and you just, you can't calm down. You can't like, because you've sped up to this pace and you don't know how to slow down, much less stop. Four is compulsive overworking, like you just work hour after hour after hour, you just get sucked into it. Five is numbness, emotional numbness, like you just don't have emotional capacity, in particular for things like empathy or compassion, because it's just, we're just overloaded. Six is escapist behavior, so you just like binge watching Man in the High Castle on Amazon or social media or alcohol or work or whatever it is for you. Seven is you're disconnected from your identity and calling. You forget who you are and who you're not, what you're called to do and what you're not called to do, and you just get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, and you get away and you make a list of like what's really important, what you really want to get done in the next season of your life. Three months go by, six months go by, a year goes by, a decade goes by. All of a sudden you realize, I've not done those things that I said were the most important because I got sucked into all of this other stuff, and I forgot who I am and what I was made to do. Eight is you're not able to attend to human needs, like exercise, eight hours or 11 hours, whatever your style is, sleep at night. Nine is hoarding energy, like you just, you hold back because you just don't have any more to give in this conversation or this meeting or this event. And 10, and I think most important, is slippage in spiritual practices. Like your prayer life just starts to go away. Your time in the Bible is non-existent or it's just cut way Back. Sabbath is just like, well, I can't do that. I live in San Francisco. It's not a thing. Church is like, well, if I can make it, whatever. The very things that make for the best part of your life are the first to go away. Now, I don't know about you. The first time I read that, I was like seven for ten. Like, dang it. <laughs> so, here's what I'm getting to. We have a problem, and it's, it's about our relationship to time and how fast we move through it. And listen, the solution is not more time. On a regular basis, I find myself saying, oh, I just wish I had like four more hours in a day. And then it was like six more hours a day. And now it's like we're up to 10 more hours in a day. But that's stupid. Like it's, that's not intelligent thinking. Because if all of a sudden the universe were to evolve and I were to get 10 more hours in my day, I would just fill up those 10 hours with more stuff and I would be even more exhausted than I am right now. The solution is not more time. It is to slow down and simplify our life around the essentials. So you have all sorts of writers and social theorists and Greg McCown here in town talking about essentialism, and that's great, but that's just secular lingo for what followers of Jesus have been talking about for thousands of years. Because our defining narrative, read Genesis chapter 1, says that we are made in the image of God and from the dust, and there is a tension there. 
Because we're made in the image of God, we have potential like no other creature in the universe to rule over God's world. But because we're made from the dust, we're finite, not infinite. We're mortal, not immortal. We only have so much to give. One of the key tasks of our apprenticeship to Jesus is learning to live into both our potential and our limitations. We live in a culture that wants to transgress all of our limitations, to transgress even time itself, to read every book, watch every show, watch every movie, see every site, travel to every country, eat at every restaurant, go to every new museum, every new concert, rise to the top of your field, hashtag YOLO, hashtag FOMA, hashtag this, that, the other. But we're human. You are not a machine, you are a human being. You are not just a consumer of goods and services. You are a soul. You are a nefesh in Hebrew. You are a living being. And one of the limitations that we all have in the room, doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're single, you have three little children, whether you're the CEO of a global company or a part-time barista, doesn't matter. We all share one limitation. There are 24 hours in the day and seven days in the week. And if you're lucky, you get 80 or 90 years and you're done. This side of resurrection. You all share that limitation. The question is, how will you spend those 24 hours, those seven days, those few short decades? We have to, in the language of Thoreau, live deliberately, on purpose. And this is what following Jesus is all about. So, to wrap up, I love to kind of move from like 30,000 feet down to like really pragmatic nuts and bolts stuff. For those of you that say, I want this, and I know it's not all of you in the room. A lot of you are writing me off, and we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> but for those of you that say, I want this, but I need a little help, are there any practices from the way of Jesus to slow down, not only for emotional health, but for spiritual life? Are there any time-tested art forms that go back thousands of years to recapture our humanity in following Jesus? Yes, there's a number. Here's four that are at the top of my list. First is this, Sabbath. Here's an idea. What if you were to set aside, just like Jesus, you follow Jesus, I'm guessing? What if you were to set aside an entire day like Jesus did for nothing but rest and worship? Not in a legalistic way. You just run everything through that filter. Is this rest and is this worship? If the answer is yes, you enjoy it. If the answer is no or not really or I'm not sure, there are six other days for that. And you notice that Walter Brueggemann um, has this great line about how people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. Because in order to Sabbath, you have to kind of slow down your whole life because you can't go from 100 miles per hour to zero mile per hour. Like, you can't do that. You have to adjust the entire rhythm of your life. Sabbath is like a governor on the speed of your life. So I just pulled out of storage. Um, I'm moving on Tuesday just a block away to this other spot. And I just pulled out of storage um, from before... We had kids when my wife and I were living the dream, like dual income, no kids, back in the glory days, all right? And um, so this was like, I don't know, 15 years ago, something like that. She bought me a motorcycle for Christmas, best wife ever. And, um, and then for our anniversary, I had to like, like something. So I bought her a Vespa, like a scooter, all right? This was years ago. And then after we had kids, we put it in storage and it just sat there. So I just pulled it out and got it all up and running to sell it, all right? And I was thinking about it, our Vespa has this governor on it, which is apparently, in, at least by Oregon law, if a vehicle can go over 50 miles per hour, then you have to have a motorcycle license to drive it. But if it doesn't go over 50 miles per hour, then you don't have to. So they put a governor on the engine so that it can't go faster than 50 miles per hour. Does that make sense? Sabbath, lousy analogy, but Sabbath is kind of like a governor on the speed of your life. It's a line in the sand saying, this far you will go and no farther. Like there is a point when you say enough is enough. Enough buying and selling and working and earning and changing the world. That's great. There are six other days of the week for that. Take one. One. It's all Jesus is asking for. And just be for a minute. Not do. And come back to yourself. 
and come back to your Father. That's the, that's the practice that I would put at the top of the list. Second is silence and solitude. I quoted that line from Luke. Jesus often withdrew into the lonely places and he prayed. That has come to be called the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude, which I define as intentional time in the quiet to be alone with yourself and God. Notice how our culture right now is talking about all of this. Like you can't go three feet in a bookstore or one click on iTunes podcast section without hearing about mindfulness, which is basically just silence and solitude, prayer, Sabbath, without the best part that is the Father. Like there's something, however you're wired, introvert, extrovert, whatever your stage of life is, there's something in here. Jesus would regularly slip away, I think of the Garden of Gethsemane, to get alone, a stone's throw away from his friends, to process his feelings with God. Often we don't even know what it is that we're feeling and what we're thinking, and we're scared to actually feel and think, and so we just distract, and we go, and we work, and we check, and we text, and we this, and then it just leaks out in unhealth, in aggression, confusion, anger, sorrow, addiction, busyness. In silence and solitude, you slow down. You let whatever is in there, good, bad, or ugly, rise to the surface. You meet God in that gratitude, joy, anger, doubt, confusion, anxiety, sadness, questions, hope, whatever it is. You meet God in that jumble of emotions. And you experience rest for your souls. Practice number three. Simple living, also known as minimalism in a secular society. Yes, to the cynic in the room, this is just for rich people. Poor people don't call it simple living. They just call it living, all right? <laughs> but let's be honest, most of you in the room are not poor. If you are, we're so happy you're here. But most of you are not. The basic idea behind simple living, which is this ancient Christian practice long before it was a fad, is to strip your life down to what really matters. You start with kind of your possessions. You go through your apartment or your room or your house or whatever, and you clear out all the clutter, and you really ask, do I really need 31 pairs of shoes and 31 full outfits, which is what the average American woman has. The average American garment is worn seven times before it's thrown away. Like, really? Do I need that many? Like, let's just cut it in half. Is 15 pairs of shoes enough? Like, just a... And you, you ask those questions, do I need this, do I need that? You clear out all of the clutter, but you don't stop there. Then you go to your activities. Do I really need that hobby or that book club I miss half the time anyway or that thing? Do I really need this extra possession? Or, and you just strip your life down to the core practices that really make for emotional health, for spiritual life, for meaning and purpose through your work, through your relationships, family or community. You strip it down to what Jesus called life to the full, and you accept your humanity. You accept your limitations. You reject FOMA and all of that, and you just be. And then four, this is a little hard to put into language, but is just slowing down the overall pace of your life in discipleship to Jesus. I'm always on the lookout for like little creative ways to subvert the modern world, you know, and like slow down my life. So here's a few like little rules I play around with, like driving the speed limit. It's crazy. Coming to a full stop at a stop sign. Sometimes I'll like get into the slow lane just for fun, just to like discipline myself. Now it's easy. I live in the city. I, I, I drive my car like once a week. So most of the time I'm on a bicycle. So Here's some that are harder for me. I sh showing up 10 minutes to an appointment and not playing on your phone. Just sitting there in the waiting room. People magazine is always on offer. Um, I keep my phone in airplane mode until after I've read my Bible and prayed in the morning, actually after I've done a few hours of work as well. I read that article everybody was passing around a few years ago on the distraction-free iPhone, turned my smartphone into a dumb phone, which I know is like the opposite thing. I'm sorry, all of you engineers, but so much better. Walking slower? This is, this is bizarre. So I've started to realize, I've started to hang out with a number of like older, wiser followers of Jesus, and I like to walk, and so I'll, sometimes I'll say, hey, rather than like sit for a cup of coffee, let's go for a nice walk. And I've started to notice there's a common denominator across gender, across ethnicity, across church tradition. Almost all of them walk really slow. 
And at first I was thought like it's because they're old or something. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not because they're out of shape. It's not because, actually, I think it's because they follow Jesus really well. And I think that if I were to take a walk with Jesus, it would not look like this. <laughs> I think it'd be the like, da, da, da. And you know, the first will be last. And the last will be first. And this on. There's something to it. We could go on and on. Journaling, single tasking, longest checkout line. Like, we could go around the room. This would be a fun exercise with your community group. And like throw out ideas for how to slow down. It's not like a legalistic thing for me. Don't, don't, don't misread me at all. I'm kind of a bit of a rule keeper, I know. But still, like this is my way to like subvert the system, all right? To actually slow down. It's not just something you do with your mind. It is something that you have to do with your body. Because our apprenticeship to Jesus is a whole person endeavor. It's not just a Bible study and a podcast and a church service and a feeling. It is a whole person endeavor, mind and body and everything in between. What I'm getting at is essentially what ancient followers of Jesus called a rule of life. There's been this explosion in writing in the self-help literature and in business stuff over the last decade in like a fixed hour work week where, you know, you set your schedule and you put everything in that matters and you stick to it. That's great. But like that's followers of Jesus have been doing that for millennia. That did not start in the marketplace a decade ago. It started in the monastery hundreds of years ago where the monastery would organize its life or even a local church would organize its life around a rule of life, which was a schedule and a set of practices that made in Jesus language abiding in the vine the primary gift of your life. Stephen Covey of 90s Daytimer fame said that we achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned with our values. I think Jesus would agree with that. We achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned within our values. And don't get turned off by that word rule. It actually is from a Greek word that was the word used for the trellis in a vineyard. So think of Jesus teaching on abiding in the vine. Think of Napa Valley or whatever. Think of a vineyard and a vine. It has to have a trellis a structure underneath it in order to grow and bear fruit. Without a trellis, it will just die. You have to have a structure and a set of practices that make not only for emotional health and an impact in your work, all, I believe in all of that, but that make for abiding in the vine in order to bear fruit and to live. Practicing the way of Jesus has to make it into your schedule where the odds are it'll never make it out of your head. Now, to end, this teaching is coming from a deep place in my heart. And um, I know that you live in San Francisco. And I don't know what that's like. And I know it would be really easy for you to write me off right now and say, that's great if you live in Portland um, or where I grew up, but not, not here. You don't know what this city is like. You don't have my job. You don't know the pace. Or it would be really easy to say, oh, yeah, that's great. I agree with all of it. You can't do that here. I'll be here another two years, and then I'm moving home, and I'll do it then. I, I, just, I just want to push back on that. Yeah, I don't live here, but I mean, I, I live in a city. I'm raising a family in a small little place. I'm leading a church, which is like a black hole of need. I do that. I travel. I have a phone. Like I, I'm not a monk, all right? Um, so I get it a little bit, I think, I'm pretty sure. And even if I don't, a lot of you are in your 20s and your 30s right now, and you think, well, I'll just be in San Francisco for a few years, and it's for my career, and this thing, great opportunity, and then I'm on to the next thing. You forget that right now you are laying the foundation for the house that is the rest of your life. And if your foundation is off, everything will be off. And one day you'll wake up and you'll be 30, 40, 50, 60, and you'll think, what the heck? I made a lot of money, I did this thing, and I lost my soul. And, I, and so I don't want to sound like all heavy and I know I'm the outsider, but there is a warning here. The Western world is in danger of losing its soul. And this is a prophetic moment for the church. 
You know, my friends who don't follow Jesus, the number one thing they talk about when they talk about how odd and interesting and fascinating our life with Jesus is, is Sabbath. They just, they can't even fathom that we set aside a whole day a week to just rest and worship. And they think it's compelling and weird. It is prophetic. Quiet is prophetic. Simplicity in an age of materialism and heat is prophetic. This is our moment. We have thousands of years of ancient Christian practices steeped in wisdom that make for Jesus' vision of the good life, which is by far the best. And so I just want to invite you into this. I've been on this journey um, three, four years ago. I hit this spot where I just was really unhealthy, and I started to plot the trajectory of my life out and see myself 10 years, 20 years down the road, and I did not like who I was becoming. And I realized I either had to make a few, like a radical overhaul to my life, or I had to become somebody that was successful on the outside and a failure as a husband, as a father, as a human being. And I, I had that moment, like that come to Jesus moment. And I went on sabbatical for three months. It was a life-changing moment. Dave and Ash, wherever you're at, we're just praying for you guys. Love you. Believe in you so much. Just so excited for you to get rest. Praying a healing, life-changing moment in your story. And I came back in the last three years. Honestly, the main thing I've been working on is just slowing my life down, making the spiritual disciplines or abiding in the vine like the, the center point of my life and letting everything, all my work and all of that, come out of that place. Easier said than done. Like, I don't have it all down. I'm three years in, and it is still, we're working on my rule of life for three years. I'm still not done. It's a process. But I'm starting to tap into what Willard says. I'm just starting to taste it. That once you slow your life down and you take on the lifestyle of Jesus, it's bizarre. All of the things that you thought were so hard become easy. That's the invitation. Will you take it? Not to sound all dour on you, but you have to make that decision. I can't make it for you. The church cannot make it for you. Your community group leader can. You have to decide. Will I just believe in Jesus and come to church and get sucked into the torrent that is the Western world in San Francisco and go? Or will I radically alter my pace of life as an act of defiance against the status quo and contribute to the flourishing of the city and the world out of a place of an unhurried following of Jesus? That's the invitation. Let's stand and pray.